Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Daniel Paris, host of the New Books Network. I'm delighted to have as my guest today, Catherine Belton. Uh, she is the author of uh, Putin's People, How the KGB Took Back Russia and Then Took on the West. Catherine is the former uh, Financial Times correspondent uh, in uh, Moscow and is currently an investigative reporter for Reuters. Catherine, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's really good to be on. So this is really quite a, a, a major book that uh, is getting a, a tremendous amount of press in in the UK, uh, no doubt some internal press in, in Moscow, but a lot of press in the West and is now uh, uh, being issued as we speak in, uh, in the United States. Uh, it, it is, I think, without overstatement, uh, going to be considered one of the kind of uh, bookshelf books that, that people will be reading for decades about uh, a critical point in in Russia's history. However, you've you've really done uh, what for me. Even I'm a reasonably close Rush, Russia watcher, and I, I'm not surprised at the return of the Russian state. But I think the two two big themes that I, I hope you can uh, elaborate on um, that you do in such great detail in the book is it's not really so much the return of the Russian state as as the return of the KGB state. And we all know Putin's former KGB agent and that there is no such thing as a former KGB agent. They're <laughs> always working as it were. But that the extent to which the state is now a KGB organization, even more so than under the Soviet Union, is, is quite quite striking. Can you kind of uh, track how that, how that emerged and how you worked that out? Yeah, thank, thanks so much for, for having me on. I mean, that was really sort of one of the critical questions I was looking at when I began working on this book. I mean, it seemed to me uh, to not quite gel that the KGB would have just given up uh, quite so easily at the Soviet fall after sort of fighting its enemy, the Imperial West, for, for so many decades. Why would it be the case that they would just sort of give up uh, and sort of fold into the Western order just because they wanted to buy themselves a nice house and a car and have a few nice consumer belongings. Uh, the Russians, I know, are all very stubborn and they don't give up easily, especially the ones in the elite, because they, you know, it's very hard to survive in the kind of cutthroat uh, Russian-Soviet politics. Um and also another of the questions I was looking at was sort of how was it that, that Putin indeed came to power? It's always been sort of portrayed as an accident of history, that it was just chance that he came to the presidency. It didn't seem to me to be so quite so so cut and dried. And, and really the story that I've tried to tell in the book is sort of how uh, the KGB in, in many ways didn't really go anywhere. And in fact, they were the ones who were propelling the move uh, to the market uh, before the Soviet fall in the beginning, uh, because it was obviously not 
the whole of the KGB, it's not a monolithic structure. Of course, you have the sort of the meathead types who were just going after dissidents domestically and all they wanted to do was control the political situation inside the country. But there was another kind of far more nimble and progressive section of the KGB uh, within the foreign intelligence arm who traveled widely and could see that the Soviet planned economy was never going to be able to compete with the West. And it was really in institutions that these faction, this faction sort of helped set up in the early 80s that the first young reformers were educated, these reformers who began to sort of work on reforms that would crack open competition within the Soviet economy that would allow sort of uh, foreign capital into the country. And, and they were the ones who... This is worth stopping and it. highlighting that... that uh, it really, really worth highlighting that the the you know the KGB. Uh, I, I I wouldn't have expected this, but it's fascinating in the book that the KGB is at the forefront of liberalizing the Russian economy. Uh, at second glance, it makes sense. At first glance, it doesn't. But you really document how you know uh, forward thinking they were, in a sense that they had to some extent uh, bail is not the right word, but significantly retreated from the underlying premise that the socialist state could compete well in a modern era, they didn't, they did not hold that view, at least the way it's presented in your book. Yeah, I think they really realized that the whole ideology was holding them back in the battle with the West. They realized that they could live better and the state could function better if they just dropped all that communist rubbish uh, for want of a better word and so they really did kind of pursue these reforms but what they were also doing in the background which was also very curious when I began to look into the archives uh, many of which had long been forgotten because the scale of changes as you know within Russia was just so great in the 90s Um, but in the archives Mm -hmm. what I found Mm -hmm. was that um, basically sort of from the late 80s onwards they'd been sort of smuggling assets out of the country uh, sort of in ever greater volume. They persuaded the Communist Party uh, as well as the perestroika reforms began and the market transition became inevitable. They persuaded the, the Politburo that they had to begin uh, hiding assets and moving them out into the West so that the Communist Party itself could continue to survive under uh, the market uh, economy. They told them they had to create an underground economy and an invisible economy. Um, And so they were helping them move uh, billions of dollars of assets out in the West, most through trading firms uh, in sort of commodities trades and so on. As we all know, the Soviet Union was very rich in resources and huge stockpiles were whisked away into the West uh, at that time. And what I found that, well, obviously a lot of it was stolen, but part of it wasn't. And when the Communist Party was banned after the failed hardline coup, it was these foreign intelligence operatives who knew where a lot of the assets were buried. And it was the foreign intelligence arm of the KGB who blocked essentially any real investigation of of where all the cash had gone. Um, So they rather rather than uh, sort of this being 
pure kind of kleptocracy, uh, sort of uh, the the KGB arm were acting to sort of try and preserve networks to kind of very strategic. Their, yes, yes, yeah, they were try, acting to try and preserve their intelligence networks uh, even after the Soviet fall because they they were they defected they defected the transition to the market economy. Some of them uh, had moved to actually support Boris Yeltsin over Gorbachev because they thought Mikhail Gorbachev's attempts at reforms uh, to keep sort of essentially socialist control, even though there was a gradual move to the market, they saw that was just not going to work. One of them said his reform effort looked about as effective as fried snowballs. So they began sort of one by one moving to Yeltsin. And indeed, that was, you know, one of the reasons why the whole hardline coup against him failed, because the KGB were never really on board against a, a coup against the Democrat, Democratic leader. Who they had increasingly, not for dem- democratic reasons, but just for strategic reasons, felt offered a, a marginally better outcome than what the communists or the, the coup leaders might have offered. Yes, yes. Again, again sort of like the, the you know, the, the, the coup, well, the, 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 the Russian revolution in, in 91 sort of happened bloodless, bloodlessly because this sort of large contingent in the security services again realized they could live better and perhaps eventually be able to compete better against the West under a different type of regime in which there was a market economy, in which there was a capitalist economy where they could eventually compete and kind of uh, infiltrate the, the West to a much greater degree. Um, and I, I, so th- so even even though the, the West was very used to seeing the Yeltsin uh, government as a kind of a Western liberal-leaning sort of reformist government, the, the, the reformers that he put in power were always in a minority, uh, always these sort of same kind of elements of the KGB stayed in the background, shadowing the new democratic leaders. And even in this sort of great uh, figurehead of the Western uh, kind of liberal uh, ideals of, 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 of Yeltsin's new government, the new prime minister was this guy called Yegor Gaidar, and he really was an emblem of, of Russia's mm-hmm. new democracy yep. and, and market economy. And so, but all the while he was he was he was making these great sweeping moves to bring the market to Russia, no no matter what, no matter what the cost to the population was, even in the background uh, when hyperinflation w- was wiping out uh, the population's savings because they they'd freed uh, prices which had previously been controlled by the communist government overnight. In the background, sort of the the Russian budget had been wiped out. What in ninety two it was. Only only $165 million. But in the background, Gaidar is still doing these sort of wonky uh, funding deals, uh, which were typical KGB operations. They were barter trades. They were smuggling deals. He did a $200 million deal to swap uh, oil products for sugar with Cuba, uh, essentially just to keep uh, the, the Russian government's Lord's listening station operational on Cuba. It was their main outlet then for listening in on the US and they wanted to keep it going no matter what even if the value of this deal was actually even bigger than the Russian budget at that time. So it just shows just how much kind of uh, emphasis was placed on on keeping things operational then. 
Now, in the background, you mentioned in these, you know, uh, up front are some Western-looking characters, but in the background, the KGB. That almost perfectly describes the Subchak-Putin relationship uh, as it emerges in uh, St. Petersburg, Leningrad, then St. Petersburg. Uh, and a good deal of your book is on on Putin's rise, his time uh, in uh, in East Germany, and then in St. Petersburg, and. It's you know almost from day one he is involved in a lot of these economic transactions whether they were part of the foreign intelligence community activity in East Germany watching what was going on in West Germany or once he uh, is involved in St Petersburg politics along with uh, for lack of a better word some organized crime syndicates in order to kind of bring order and cash flow to St Petersburg the economic element is 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 uh, front and center for Putin's uh, uh, emergence there. Uh, can you comment on on you know that to me again that was the degree to which it was economic was was surprising to me and something I, I had not realized before. Yeah, it was that was one of the kind of the eye opening moments really when I began looking more closely at sort of one of these sort of crucial deals that Putin's has become very well known for uh, in St. Petersburg. There was a huge scandal over this the Abata deal that he oversaw as deputy mayor. He was there in the shadows as the KGB picked sort of right hand man to the great liberal leader of St. Petersburg, Anatoly Sobchak. Uh, but in the background, uh, you know, St. Petersburg, uh, one, had no food, and two, uh, it seemed they also wanted to keep their, their intelligence networks running. And so th- there had been a huge scandal over a barter deal uh, that Putin had helped set up. It was called the Oil for Food deal, and he'd handed out a, a bunch of licenses worth an, an enormous amount of money uh, to crony trading firms uh, to sell abroad sort of commodities from state-owned enterprises. And the great scandal came. Uh, what they were meant to do was was to sort of swap the commodities for food because St. Petersburg was was crucially short of food in, the, in those days. But the food never appeared. So there was a huge scandal. And it's always been painted that, uh, in a way that suggested that sort of Putin was merely enriching his allies. But when you looked at the, the the people who were sort of uh, operating in these deals when you looked at, at sort of the the networks uh, most of the the people he was handing the licenses to were his uh, KGB allies uh, that he'd known from previous uh, previous operations in, in Dresden and elsewhere in the late 80s but also I found I came what the real kind of breakthrough for me came when I met this former KGB operative uh, who'd worked with Putin on, on the oil for food deals. And he explained to me that actually... What it was about then was sort of finding a way to feed uh, the intelligence networks because in those days, uh, Russia had pronounced itself bankrupt. It had taken on all the debt of the Soviet Union mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and any money that it kept in foreign bank accounts officially was frozen. They weren't paying any of their foreign debts. But what the oil for food deal was designed uh, to do, so as the story was told to me, was actually to pay off uh, 
so-called friendly firms. And these were the entities that the KGB in Soviet times had used to uh, kind of fund influence operations abroad. The friendly firms were the ones that supplied the Soviet Union with vital infrastructure equipment, uh, very often at a vastly inflated price. And then they got to sort of keep the difference and use it to fund uh, the Communist Party abroad or other more nefarious influence operations. And essentially what this ex-KGB guy told me, he said, look, we had to continue paying the friendly firms. Like we couldn't say uh, to sort of the other debtors like Philip Morris or whoever else that we can't pay you, but we're paying uh, these other uh, entities. So they had to find a sort of a black channel that no one would would know about to to kind of shift the money and to continue to keep these firms operational and to keep paying the debts. I mean, he explained it in a way sort of to say that we needed to receive this essential infrastructure equipment, but the friendly firms, they were known entities for funding influence operations. And he said that, look, if the city of St. Petersburg had an official account uh, in a foreign bank, it would have been frozen right away. So we needed to create these grey schemes to have sort of offshore accounts stashed away in Liechtenstein so that we could pay for things whenever we needed to. So, and, and, and what Putin was doing in St. Petersburg, it was really the tip of an iceberg. You know, there were all these other similar barter schemes underway uh, on a federal level in Russia, and most of it was watched over by the the ex-KGB foreign intelligence types who indeed had always controlled the Soviet trade ministry and continued to do so under Yeltsin. So that, that raises the kind of the second issue, which I think for most readers will be um, uh, stunning, revelatory, and that is that, uh, yes, the return of the state, well, it turns out to be a KGB state. If I, if I thought about it closely, that makes sense too. But where you spend a lot of time in uh, you know, classic investigative journalism is the economic operations abroad of the KGB in the late Soviet period, in the Putin period, and to this day, and those friendly firms and ranging from you know industrial enterprises to investment banks in, in London in particular, uh, the I, I don't want to use the word compromise, but the degree to which the uh, Western um, many Western elements of the financial system and industrial system were happy to be involved uh, is 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 striking and extremely well documented. I mean that that is a um, uh, a spider web of entanglement with with the West over a twenty year period. Yes, I think it was pretty easy for Putin to find the sort of the crucial chink in the West's armor. This great weakness in the Western kind of political and economic system, i.e., sort of the capitalist system itself, i.e., the the motivation for profit, uh, out seems to override any principles 
So when uh, he did come to the presidency, when he was able to sort of make this huge leap, uh, the first, obviously, the, the first thing he did was to begin to take over the country's economic assets. And he did so in ways that were sort of in the West <laughs> would normally be extremely frowned on. And and indeed, they, they were. I mean, there was a lot of noise in the Western press about sort of uh, his nefarious tactics in taking over the country's biggest oil company, uh, which was UCAS in, in 2005 and 2006, and sort of a bankruptcy process that stretched even into 2007, when essentially uh, his uh, kind of KGB allies completely took over the Russian court system and, and used it to sort of break apart UCAS and, and do with it as, as, as they wanted. There was noise about this in the West, at least in the media, but in the background, uh, you know, Western companies were sort of jumping on board the Kremlin bandwagon because they could see that the, any company associated with the Kremlin was going to have access to billions of dollars in cash. It was sort of like, it was like a juggernaut because once you have control of the, the court system, you can bend uh, any business your way. And if you wish to take it over, you can. And indeed, that's what Putin's men did. So all these Western banks and sort of companies were lining up to take a, a piece of the action. I think one Western uh, US official told me that sort of in the days when uh, Putin's government was taking over UCAS, that of course the US government tried to have a consistent message that this wasn't going to be good for the rule of law or good for Russia's investment climate. And indeed it would end up isolating it for the West. But that whole message was undermined when all these Western energy giants began lining up to take a piece of the action, you know. And for Putin, the message was very, very clear that sort of uh, Western companies, the Western corporate climate was such that, you know, monetary concerns uh, overrode any principle. And really, to that degree, he could get away with anything he wanted. And so it, it might be unfair. You, you just declined to use the term uh, klept, klept, kleptocracy. Uh, and maybe it is it is uh, too strong a term, but uh, if anything, the uh, the Western business people with perhaps less perspective were were very very involved, shall we say? Um, it, again, with those two big points that the the return of the state is the return of the KGB, and the KGB turns out to be a pretty pretty canny economic operator, both at home and abroad. Uh, you know those that that cover that in 500, 600 pages in great detail. And the book, by the way, is, is so well written because it, it, it reads uh, very easily. It's it's a thriller, unfortunately, uh, but it, it is a good one. But I, I want to kind of step back and in our remaining minutes, just ask some, some broader questions, which other than the obvious concern that anybody might have or a state official might have about interference from abroad, either economic or political... Uh, I, I have observed that many, many Westerners get very agitated about the fact that Russia is not a liberal democracy. And then they're presented with you know, decades more evidence that Russia is not a liberal democracy and it continues to fail to become a liberal democracy. And, and at, at what point do we have to say, okay, um, yep, this is what happened in Russia um, from a historical perspective, not that surprising and um, we'll just – 
let it go. And, you know, it is what it is. Um, that is, West, the West continues to get agitated about the fact that Russia is Russia. I, I was wondering whether you, you know, upon reflection of writing this book, ha- had some exasperation yourself or, or, you know, your contacts in Moscow that you uh, are still disappointed that it turned out this way? Or, or are you kind of accepting that it turned out this way? And, and it just, you're just narrating it? Is, is there a take there? My, uh, you know, is, is there some room for saying, well, this is, this is the way it is, and we just have to deal with it and uh, stop getting so upset? So I'm afraid it is the way it is, but that's not necessarily the case that it won't change at some point. I mean, obviously, under Putin's leadership for 20 years, the Russians have had no alternative because uh, obviously he's he's made it his task to take over all the levers of power. There are no there's no access to the airwaves for any kind of independent politician. You just don't get it. But um, I think his model of running the country is now kind of also sitting uneasily with a large faction of the elite, including indeed some ex-members of the KGB who've also criticized his management style. Because I guess what I forgot to to mention early on, which is sort of quite important, sort of when the Yeltsin uh, government, the Yeltsin family were picking sort of Putin as, as the successor to take over Yeltsin, they were essentially duped into thinking that Putin was a liberal and progressive, that he was one of them. And they also believed that he was the one who would be strong enough to protect them because they were under kind of great uh, pressure at that point. There were various criminal investigations going on, not just in Russia, but also in Switzerland. So they really wanted a strong man to protect them. But it just so happened that in doing so, um, you know, they picked the the KGB clan from St. Petersburg that was most ruthless, that would really kind of stop at nothing to, to hold on to power when there were perhaps sort of, you know, even if it was inevitable that the KGB was going to come in, to come to power, there were other clans uh, in Moscow that were a bit more sophisticated, uh, that were perhaps sort of, you know, not quite so desperate to, to hold on to power and project power no matter what. And I think sort of Putin's background in St. Petersburg is, is very telling because they were always sort of on the fringes. It kind of makes you kind of push and sort of have a slight inferiority complex compared to the smoother your smoother mm-hmm. comrades in Moscow. So they were always tougher. They were always more ruthless. And I think... Um, that's what you see in the way his regime has run. There's, there's no room for uh, any competition within the economy. It's all controlled by a sort of tight network of his most loyal allies. Uh, sort of investment is really drying up because other businessmen sort of fear that it could be taken away from them at any time. Other sort of Moscow oligarchs who were once powerful under Yeltsin have acknowledged that they have to do the bidding of the Kremlin and really it's completely stifling the economy and of course under the conditions of of not just the coronavirus but also a massive drop in the oil price this just isn't sustainable anymore so in the corona pandemic of course that's hitting every single country but in Russia millions will lose their jobs Uh, in Russia one of the reasons why Putin is so 
been so popular despite the heavy hand of his state is because you know he's he's been able to offer rising living standards compared to the chaos of the Yeltsin years and sort of you know all the economic crises of then there's been but he's also been blessed with sort of consistently high oil prices throughout his presidency until now. So he had this sort of clear contrast uh, with the Yeltsin years when oil prices were very low. Uh, you know, sort of, so he was also almost of not even of his own doing that Russians live better than they did during the Yeltsin era. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was kind of almost but he's taking him credit. as a present. And, but, you know, but it's becoming ever clearer and even to sort of ex-KGB types from within Moscow that something needs to change, that it can't, that the, his style of management where it's sort of this uber system of control, this very autocratic regime isn't and can't last. But obviously, uh, because his men have monopolized power for so long and they've done so many nefarious things to 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 reach that state, it's obviously very, very difficult for them to hand over power to anyone because it's so risky for their own positions. But at some point, this, this system really has to change. And I don't believe that sort of Russia is fated what? always to be an autocracy. I think you know um, I'm not saying it has to be a Western model but um, but I do think there's always been this sort of ebb and flow in Russia between sort of more liberal and more autocratic regimes so where do you see Alexei Navalny if anywhere in yeah. in this uh, he has he's he's the Russian Catherine Belton or or you are the Western Alexei Navalny <laughs> in terms of, of chronicling uh, specifically the corruption uh, issue and the the economic angle. He's a very interesting character. He doesn't really portray himself as a, as a Western liberal. He's just trying to keep more more money in Russia for Russians. Uh, but uh, and, and yet he's still around. Uh, he has no accidents have befallen him, surprisingly. Um, you know, d- does is he that alternative because he focuses uh, on corruption rather than on civil liberties or or not i i i don't have a a view that i'm just simply asking posing a question as it were it's not clear really whether Navalny is going to be sort of ever uh, have the ever will, will if he'll ever have the clout to be sort of an alternative political leader. Yes, he's a great anti-corruption fighter, and he's done great work in sort of unveiling some of the abuses of the Putin regime. But you know, he's never had any political experience. You know, he's never managed anything when Yeltsin came to power in. 91, he'd already spent several years in the Soviet Politburo, so he knew kind of how to manage things and he knew how, how the system worked. I'm not sure that it's feasible for an outsider like Navalny, even though, you know, he's a very kind of charismatic orator. He brought out uh, great crowds in 2011 when uh, sort of the kind of the liberals of Russia were protesting Putin's re- re- return to power and sort of vote fraud during parliamentary elections. He he really did sort of come into his own back then. But I'm not I'm not sure whether that's you know whether his his time has already passed and if there's going to be an alternative mm-hmm. to Putin, whether it has to come from from somewhere else, whether it's either 
so a regional governor or someone else from within the elite. It's very difficult to see at the moment because, yes, we have this system where there are no alternative voices allowed to speak out. It's only Putin's men sort of spouting the, the state propaganda on federal TV channels. So I think the if, the, if there is going to be change, it has to become come from within that elite rather than someone like Navalny. Interesting. So uh, within that elite, uh, your book has come out, has created quite a sensation in England. It's going to create a sensation in the United States, perhaps more so if, if were it not for COVID-19. <laughs> uh, the For American readers, I'll let you know that the press reaction in the UK has been uh, uh, notable, uh, extremely positive and uh, getting a lot of attention. I, I'm curious what the, uh, if you've had any, uh, what your life has been like after and uh, what, if any, reaction the Kremlin has has uh, made public and, um, you know, how, how has, what's the story after the book has come out uh, uh, for, for you and this narrative of the, you know, highly sophisticated economic interaction of, um, the Russian government, both internally and to the West. Um, thank, thank you for all the all the kind words. Um, I'm sort of still keeping my fingers crossed. It will attract the same positive reviews in the US as it has in the UK. So we'll we'll, we'll see about that. Um, but um, obviously, uh, I think that the Kremlin response uh, has been pretty muted because obviously most of the major claims we had to put to the Kremlin before the before the book came out, we had to give them, of course, the right to reply to some of the allegations. And to some, and we also did the same with most with the the oligarchs involved, these sort of custodians who act as arms of the Kremlin. We sort of, you know, they knew what was coming beforehand. So, you know, and then, and I also think the Kremlin, quite frankly, has much bigger problems to deal with now than than sort of another book in the West that's kind of quite critical of, of the Putin regime. I think the Putin is busy fighting the, the global pandemic just as other leaders are in the Western world. And he's got a far more difficult task in many ways because the Russian healthcare system is, is pretty weak. Um, and, uh, you know, and they, they, they do have a kind of stash of hard currency reserves, but it's finite and you can only bail out so many companies and they seem to be prepared to sort of let small and medium enterprises go bust, which again is a tremendous gamble, which which could one day come back to bite Putin. So I think they've got much bigger problems to deal with than, than my book. Um, so, and as for my life after the book, well, I'm just trying to get back to reporting. There's still an awful lot to uncover about sort of Putin's influence networks and how they've managed to kind of infiltrate and penetrate sort of the Western financial systems and uh, political systems quite so uh, skillfully. And, you know, it's there's a lot more to uncover. So I'm trying to get back to doing that because even though I've written a book, most of it has just pointed to new leads for places we all should be looking so that is that will be uh, volume two. Uh, volume <laughs> one is is Putin's people, uh, how the KGB took back Russia and then took on the West by Catherine Belton. Catherine, thank you so much uh, for being on the New Books Network. It is 
really an interesting and important book that you've published, and I think it's going to be read in the U.S. Uh, despite COVID and despite the current distractions uh, uh, closely and extensively uh, for many years to come. Thank you again for being on the show. Thank you. Thanks. It was really great talking to you. Thank you. Thanks for the great questions.